We're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. It's page 1430. And I want to read to you um, from verse 7 to verse 11. Listening to the things that have been shared this morning and... um, I think the way that God's been speaking to us, it's just very evident to me that um, he really wants to get, he really wants to speak to people today on the theme that we're thinking about. So I'm, I'm really convinced that, um, that God's at work in an unusual way, I think, this morning. Let me read to you from Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus says this. He says, ask and I'll be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now, I need to just get right to the, the nut of this straight away and just ask this, the obvious question, what's it about? The reason why I want to ask that to, to, at the start is because I think most of us would naturally assume that this passage is about prayer, which it is. But often it's only read as being about prayer. So these, the three verbs that Jesus used, ask, seek, knock are usually understood as just being different facets to praying. And some people would argue a kind of intensification of prayer. Um, So somebody might begin with asking, and then it really becomes seeking, and then it becomes knocking. And so we read the whole thing just in terms of our prayer lives. But what I think this is actually about is something more fundamental even than your prayer life. It's really about the soil from which your prayer life grows. And what I mean is this, that we are all people who have a need and a degree of faith in the God who meets that need. And out of that soil comes prayer, but also comes other kinds of things that we do to engage with God, the seeking and the knocking. So I want us not just to narrow this down to Jesus thinking about prayer. I don't think he's just speaking about that. I think he's drilling down a bit deeper into the things that go on in your heart in terms of your daily walk with God, and in terms of your, um, how, the degree of faith you have, essentially, which I hope you will see, is more important than probably you've even realized, and more determinative of the way you live, and how you live, and whether you live a godly life than you realize. It's about praying, but it's also about every other act of obedience that we give to God. I want us to think about faith, then, and Faith is trust in God as our Father. Think of it this way. We all have people who we would consider to be heroes of the faith. Some of them in the Bible. I think many of us identify with, or at least aspire to something of the courage of men like David and Joshua, who did great exploits for God and lived lives of extraordinary faith. And then there's also people who just have that kind of grit you know, who, who just see life, despite all the buffeting and the suffering and the delay and all these things, just have a kind of faith that sees them through in a gritty way over the long haul. And I think about somebody like we mentioned a few weeks ago, the prophetess Anna in the New Testament, who had been widowed and then for decades spends every day 
in the temple, and she's often worshipping, and she's often fasting, and it's just this long-haul faith in God to see what she hopes for, which is to see the salvation of her people through Jesus. And of course, she dies having just seen the baby Jesus. But whichever kind of faith we're talking about, we all have heroes of the faith, men and women of God. And then we look at our own lives, and what we wish we would be, what we imagine we could be, is often very different from our day-to-day walk with God and experience of God. And I think about things like this. That Let's think about a number of examples. You think about the way we treat our money. That we would imagine that we would be self-sacrificial people who would be generous to a fault and live in the kind of trust that God's going to meet our needs. But actually, in, in, in reality, we often find that we're worried about our money and that we're, we're protective of our our income and our savings and all these kinds of things to a degree that maybe isn't healthy. We think about things like anxiety. You imagine yourself being a kind of courageous, fearless person who lives a life of trust in the Holy God, knows that he's good, that he's on your side. But the reality is that day to day, many of us face anxieties that sometimes border on crippling, but often are just a low-level cause for discomfort and frustration and and um, you know that we're not we're not the joyful people that we ought to be. I think about insecurities. We imagine ourselves being people who, you know, as I've often said, who live for the audience of one, who live before God, as though His opinion is the only thing that matters about you. But then it comes to it, in the day-to-day experience of life. How often do we find ourselves wanting to please men and living with an insecurity about what people think and feel about us, and therefore not at all living for an audience of one, but an audience for whoever happens to be in your mind at that moment, or nearest to you in proximity. We think about temptations. The sins that you battle with regularly, habitually, or the things that just seem to be hitting you right now. We imagine ourselves being people who who, who could say no to sin, and yes to God, and yes to all the satisfaction that we can have in Christ, But often, in the day-to-day experience of life, we find ourselves tripping up in the same ways or giving in to the same lusts or or drawn to the same proclivities and tendencies that are in our spirits, don't we? We think about one of the examples Jeremy gave, loneliness and and singleness. How we imagine ourselves, again, being satisfied with Christ as as our husband. But how often people struggle with the desire just to find anyone, regardless of whether they love Jesus. Prayer. Don't you, don't you wish that you were a prayer warrior? Somebody who, um, who sees great things achieved through your prayer life. And we read the stories of, of people who, who have done these things. But often, in the day-to-day experience of life, it's, we're lucky if we squeeze in five minutes before you, you jump on the tube. Or maybe you do it while you're on the tube, muttering beneath your breath, trying not to look crazy. And you think about your calling, how you think, you said many times to God, God, I want to live for you, I want to offer you my life, I want to do what your will, but then when it comes down to it, um, no, I'm not necessarily going to leave that job, or I'm not necessarily going to take that job, or I'm not necessarily going to sacrifice to live there with that, in, um, whatever, whatever it is. I, you know, we could go on and on. What I'm trying to say to you is that it's easy to imagine one thing about ourselves, but much harder in the day-to-day grind of life to live faith-filled lives. And that's the issue, isn't it? What is it that we so often lack? It's faith. It's that day-to-day trust in the God who is good to us. And that's what affects us. So 
as Darth Vader puts it, I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> I think that's what Jesus would say to us. How does Jesus want to address it? <clears throat> How does he want to address it in this passage? Remember, we're not just talking about prayer. We're talking about the soil of your heart, the faith from which everything grows. The biblical pattern is always to go mind, heart, will. That God wants to address you in your mind, let sink down into the depths of your soul, into your heart, and then for it to affect your will and your decision making. And so Christ wants us to be faithful disciples, who if I can put it as bluntly as this, who live as though God is real. That's it, isn't it, really? That the way you live and the realities you profess are so often at a different level. There's a disjunction. But to be people who live as though God is real is to be people with such a faith that gives birth to the, the right kinds of prayers, the right kinds of seeking, the right kinds of knocking, the right kinds of actions. That's what I want us to think about. I want us to think in terms of mind, heart, will. Think, feel, do. And we're kind of working backwards through this passage, actually. First of all, then, think. What is your understanding of God? A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why? Because whether you think of God, particularly whether you think of him as good or not, determines whether you live in dependence upon him. What do you think of when you think of God? What's he like? We need to think right thoughts about God. That's what Jesus, where Jesus wants us to be in. How do we think right thoughts about God? We really only have two options. On the one hand, you have speculation. Speculation is what you feel God is like, what people tell you God is like, what the religions tell you God is like, what so-called prophets tell you what God is like, what the culture tells you what God is like. All these things are speculation, but the Bible says there's only one way to know what God is like, and it's through revelation. What's revelation? Well, revelation is what you put on your online dating profile. What do I mean? Well, when you are, when you are engaging in online dating, you have no idea what other people are really like. All you know is what they tell you about themselves on their profile page when they choose the best possible photograph. They tell you about their profound love of classic Russian literature and their, their ability to play music, musical instruments to various grades and all these kinds of things. And when you discover them, so often perhaps the reality is, is not the same as, as what they portray. But that's revelation. Of course, now when we're talking about God, what we have to believe is that God wants to put before us a true representation of himself, but that we can't know him any other way than by how he's revealed himself. And how does he reveal himself? Well, it's in the scriptures, and in particular passages like this. And what Jesus is doing here for his disciples, for us, is he's wanting to take away all the wrong things that we think about God as Father and put in place the truth of his revelation that he lived and demonstrated in his own person, but he also taught us in verses like this. Look at the last verse. He says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So simply put, what he's trying to say to us is this, that God is 
good and that he cares. Every trouble that you have in the Christian life is rooted in your doubt about that reality. So you tell me your trouble. You tell me what it is you struggle with, whether it's a temptation, whether it's a lack of trust, whether it's a cautiousness, a fear, whatever your trouble is. And we could work it back and understand that it's rooted in a lack of belief in the goodness of your heavenly Father, that you think the wrong thing about the God that you serve. When you're tempted, it's because you are drawn to a goodness that is outside of God. When you're anxious, it's because you're not sure that God has your best interests at heart. When you're afraid, the same. Whatever it is, it always comes back to this. And it's really the same issue that began our problems in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent came to Eve and began sowing the seeds of doubt about God's goodness. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Not only factually incorrect, because he didn't say that, but also it was insinuating something about God, that God is withholding, that he's not good, that he doesn't love you, that he's not on your side, that he's not interested in your benefit. Friends, Jesus wants us to get back to basics and just understand the very, very simple truth, but yet the, the hardest truth to grasp in all its fullness, which is that God is good. If a person grasps that in all of its fullness, they live a life like Christ. They live a life of total dependence upon the Father, of total courage and faith and forward-looking direction in God's will. Everything you struggle with in the Christian life is always rooted in doubt over this issue. Is God on my side? Is he good? Does he have my best interests at heart? You tell me your trouble, and I'll tell you how it's rooted in this wrong belief. What's your first thought about God? Jesus wants us to think differently. Secondly, he wants us to feel differently. What do you feel about God as Father? The truth is that I think that we, there's a lot of things we know, aren't there, in life, intellectually know, that haven't yet sunk down into our heart to the extent where they change the way you behave because they don't feel to be the strongest facts about life. I think about things like um, that we've been told for, for many decades now that smoking kills but people still do it, don't they? And we've even been told just this last week that eating pork kills. Um, I don't want you guys to get suddenly in a panic if you had bacon for breakfast, but there's some kind of very small chance that it's carcinogenic and that kind of thing. And we, we, we're chatting with, this, with Eke, about, chatting with Ekene about this last week, and the reality is neither of us are willing to give up bacon. <laughs> for the simple reason that it, it, may, it may be true at some intellectual level, but to be honest, until... It's always the strongest feeling that's king in your heart. Always the strongest feeling that's king. The strongest, most deeply held belief, really, but the thing that you feel at the gut level. So, you know, that's just a very silly example, but it's true at the deepest examples of life as well. The temptation that's immediately in front of you. The strongest feeling is king. That's a good that's more immediate, that's more accessible, that's more tangible to me right now than trusting God. You can know, therefore, true things about God, in particular what I'm trying to very much emphasize for you today, which is that he's good, and it it maybe hasn't sunk down to the level where you believe it in your gut, where you feel it to be true. 
James described people like this as the doubting person who says that we ought to ask God and things in faith with no doubting because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. And that person mustn't suppose it will receive anything from the Lord. How easily our emotions are so violently changeable from moment to moment, day to day, because our beliefs are shifting like waves. There's no predictability. There's always a a new feeling that rules you in the moment. One moment you think, I'm all out for God, I'm passionate, I'm zealous, I'm I'm acting in faith, and the next minute you're like, you're crumbling in the dust, sitting in self-pity and woe and looking at yourself and thinking, why am I such a loser? It's a reality, isn't it, that so many of us face. And it has to do with this thing that, that, that it's not enough just that we know the truth about God, that, that he is good. That's what Jesus tells us, that he's this good father, but that it sinks down into your heart and you feel it in the deepest part of your gut that you know God as your father. Jesus wants to give us this gut level knowledge. That's why he says these things in verse 9 on. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? He's wanting us to resonate with concrete things that we've hopefully experienced in life about good dads. What a good dad looks like. What it feels like to be under the warmth of his love. And understand that a dad is always interested in your your best interests. Now I know immediately we're going to have a couple of objections that are going to hit us back when when I try and sort of talk about this. One is this. What if you've never experienced the goodness of an earthly father? A lot of people feel that it's hard to, to know in that gut level way the goodness of, of our Heavenly Father if you've never had a good dad on earth. I know not all of us have. The reality is probably all of us can think about our dads and see faults even in the best dads. But there are some of us who've had really earthly fathers who, who were, were not up to scratch. Is it possible for you to identify with what Jesus is saying here and, and feel in your gut the goodness of God in a way that is going to be life-changing and transformative? I would want to say a few things to you, friend. I want to say, first of all, that this knowledge, this deep-held feeling of God as your Father, is always a supernatural thing. It doesn't matter how good or bad your earthly dad was, whether he was there or even not there. The knowledge of God as Father is always a supernatural thing. It's a work of the Spirit in our hearts. And in that sense, therefore, we're all in the same boat. We need to have this revelation of God as Father shining upon us, changing our lives supernaturally by God's Spirit. I'd also want to say this. Even if you've had the worst earthly dad or no dad, you still know what father hunger is and crave the right kind of fathering. The reason I say that is because sometimes in life we can experience things that put us off something for life. So when I was a teenager, my mom learned how to make pumpkin soup one day. And so she went to an Indian market. I think she actually bought it in London, weirdly, though we didn't live in London. But we'd been to Little India in London. She bought a pumpkin and brought it home and thought, I'm going to make pumpkin soup. And weirdly, she made this soup. And then I have hardly any recollection of her ever doing this in my life. But she didn't eat it. She went out for a run while the rest of us, my, my two brothers and my dad, ate the soup, which was weird in itself. 20 minutes into having eaten the soup, I began to feel sick in my stomach 
violently sick to the point where I had to run to the bathroom. I, I, was, I vomited in, into the toilet. Now, my, my, I can't remember what happened to Joshua, but I remember what happened to James, my older brother. He downed about three pints of water in the attempt to dilute whatever was going on <laughs> inside him. But it made the situation much, much worse because then when it came time for him to up Chuck, he had to run out onto the patio and it was just everywhere. My dad held it down but went bright red for about three hours. I'm not sure what kind of poison was in this pumpkin. And mum came home from her run, unsuccessfully trying, having tried to kill us all. And she, she didn't, eat, didn't touch the thing. But here's the thing. For the rest, for, for many years, I did not want to... I didn't want to taste pumpkin. I had no pumpkin hunger in my heart. I did not have a pumpkin-shaped hole in my, in my being or desire to, to, to fill it with pumpkins, with good pumpkins. But the difference is with, with God's fatherhood is that regardless of how bad your earthly dad is, we all, we all have that father hunger for the, for the knowledge of God as father in a deep way that impacts us and reshapes the way we think about our life. We're all in the same boat in that sense. And friend, you are, you are with me in that. And you can have it just as much as I can have it. The reality is even the best earthly dads pale in comparison. Even the best. My dad grew up in a home where his, his dad was a terrible man. And um, he actually came to faith on his deathbed in his 80s when dad led him to faith reading Psalm 23 with him. But he was an atheist, and he would do cruel, cruel things. Like, he would bring home a a bag that looked like a bag of sweets and offer it to the kids, and they'd open it excitedly and discover that it was a bag of coal. And he was violent, and he was verbally abusive, and all these things. But I know that my dad has come to know the love of our Heavenly Father, perhaps not as fully as he'd wish to, or as completely as we all want, but he knows it, and it's changed his life. And also, you know, I should add that because of God's grace and his gospel, he can break the cycle of destruction that goes on in our earthly families. Because I have had the privilege of growing up under a father whose whole life was transformed by the love of God. And even though I can't say he's been a perfect dad, whose dad is, I can say that he's taught me about the love of God. But friend, whether you're in the worst of situations or the best of them, God can beat his love down upon you. I mean like the sunshine, not like a baseball bat. (laughs) In a wonderful way. Supernaturally revealing his love. And that's what we ought to be praying for. He might also object in this way and say, what if you know it in your head but it just has never sunk into your heart? I'd probably want to come back at you with a few questions and try and diagnose what's going on. My first would be this. Are you sure that you're saved? I mean, are you sure that you're part of God's family? A lot of people think that they're Christians and they've never even understood what it means to be a Christian, what it means to come into God's family, what it is to know God as Father. And I say, first of all, as gently as I can, friend, I would encourage you to look at your heart to come and talk to me, to understand what it means to be a Christian, what the promises of the scriptures are. And, and you can know that love today if you cross that line and, and join God's family. I'd also maybe want to ask you this. Are you, have you tasted of God's spirit? Remember in the similar passage in Luke where Jesus uses some of the very same words about 
asking God for good stuff. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The book of Romans talks about the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of fatherhood, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Friend, if you are absolutely sure that you're a Christian, but you're not sure that you've ever really felt the love of God in this way, I would encourage you to take this verse in Luke 11 and make it your prayer until God pours the Spirit out on you to such a degree that you know His love in the deepest part of your being. Can I ask you this? Are you standing on God's Word? I said to you earlier, the only way we can know God is through the Scriptures because that is His self-revelation to us. And friend, if you are seeking to know God's love without understanding Him through the way He's he's sought to communicate with you, then it's no surprise that you, you can't know the love of God. You have to be in the Word of God. You have to be hearing the voice of God. You need to experience His revelation to your heart when the Holy Spirit breathes on the words of Scriptures and shows you that you are a child of God or through preaching like this today. God speaks when we open up the Scriptures and it resonates with us in our hearts. And I'd want to ask you this. Are your eyes open? Because God has shown you love in more ways than you probably could even count. And often it's our failure to acknowledge His love that leads us into dark places of doubt. You may be suffering right now, but I I am sure that you can find ways of thanking God for His goodness to you, much as we're hearing about Job early on in the worship. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That should be the Christian's creed. I worship, I adore, I give thanks to God, regardless of what's going on in life. Because I can see His goodness even in this, that He works all things together for my good, as it says in Romans. What more can God do to prove his love for you than what he did in giving Jesus on the cross? It says in Romans 5 that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And friend, that is a fact regardless of what's going on in your heart, regardless of how you feel about your closeness or not with God, regardless about what your heart is telling you about His goodness, the reality is you can look at an event in history when Christ was poured out and His body was broken on the cross and His blood was poured out and it was a demonstration of the love of God for you. God cannot show you in any clearer way than in the giving of His Son. And finally, I want us to think about what it means to put this into action. Think, feel, and now do. How would you live if you know, know, know this to be true? If everything that Jesus says about the goodness of the Father has sunk into your heart and reshaped and reformed the way you live, that's the question we need to wrestle with. What's He inviting us to do as a result of this knowledge of His goodness, of the Father's goodness? I said to you at the beginning that I think it's about prayer, but I think it's about more than prayer. I think it's about prayer, but I think it's also about every action that comes out of a life of faith. As Christians, we're called to both pray and to act and for all of it to come out of faith. If we only pray but never act, it's just hot air. 
And if we act but never pray, then it's presumption and pride and self-sufficiency. The Christian is a person whose faith gives birth both to prayers and also to actions that come out and sometimes in themselves are almost an expression of prayer because it's saying, God, I will take a step in the direction that you are leading me regardless of whether I feel courageous or afraid or whatever. God is calling you to both pray and act in such a way that it is demonstrably true that your life is built on the solid conviction that God is a good, good father. Let's think about these three words that Jesus is urging us towards. Actually, let me just flick back into Psalm 18 very quickly just to show you how this works out in David's life. Pray and act. I began with this psalm. We actually sang some of this psalm in the first song. Verse 3 says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm safe from my enemy. So David says, my faith and my conviction in God's goodness gives birth to prayer. But he doesn't stop there because he goes on later in the psalm. He says in, like, things like this in verse 29. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength, made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. And he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. David was trying to express, from his experience actually, an example of what it means to be somebody who believes that God has just been good to me. He'd been, Saul had been after him, wanting to kill him, and he'd survived. Time and time again he survived. And that psalm comes out of that experience of God's goodness. And he says, I pray to you and you answered, and then I can run against the troop. I can act. I can step out in faith and know that God will be with me because he's a good father who's on my side. Let's think about this in terms of the three words that Jesus gives us here. First of all, ask. Are you asking? Are you really asking? He says, ask, it will be given to you. And then the next verse, who everyone who asks receives. The book of James says, you have not because you ask not. It says often, in other words, the root of our trouble is that we've never even really spoken to God about it. That we're not, we're not prayerful. He then goes on and says, and you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So I know that we can pray in a wrong way. But how often the problem is with us that we are just prayerless. Are you asking is my first question to you. Because Jesus says here in a very emphatic way, whoever asks receives. In other words, God wants to answer your prayers prayed in faith. Now I know immediately that when we read verses like this, almost too quickly, we want to react and say, well, what about unanswered prayer? So let me just quickly deal with that. A couple of things I'd want to say. The first of all, you need to understand that prayer is personal, not mechanical or magical. What do I mean? Well, a mechanical thing is something where it's very much, you do this act and cause and effect produces this result. I put my key in the car, I turn the key, it boots into life most of the time mechanical. Magical is, is not really that dissimilar. I do these certain things and the result is this, you know, abracadabra. 
I say the right spell, and boom, it happens. And some people think of what Jesus is offering as some kind of like Aladdin's lamp here in terms of prayer. And friends, you know, it couldn't be clearer that Christ isn't interested in a mechanical view of God or a magical view of God. He wants to put before us a personal view of God as a father. And who knows that every good father is interested in the good of their children in ways that their children cannot always see because this is a personal thing, not a magical or mechanical thing. And I'd also want to add to that. Think about this. Wouldn't you be afraid if the answer to every one of your prayers was always yes. You know, how many of the women here would be married to Coyote if every, <laughs> if every prayer was yes? <laughs> I can think back to the things I prayed in my life, even sometimes in desperation, and now I can look back and be like, God, I thank you that you did not answer that prayer in the way that I wanted you to answer it. We are too finite, too limited, too small to imagine that we have the best idea about what's good for us, such that God's always going to answer a prayer with yes. It'd be a scary thought, wouldn't it, if Christians run the world in that way? It'd be terrifying. All that aside, Jesus just wants to know, are you asking? Are you asking with the conviction that the Father is good? that he's interested in your good. If you're not asking, then he's not going to answer. Let me ask you this also. Are you seeking? He says, seek and you'll find. And he goes on, the one who seeks, finds. What is it that you need to know or understand? I think this could very well resonate with someone here who is not a Christian. There's a verse... Earlier in the Bible, it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's my conviction that anyone who truly seeks God in this way will find him or indeed will be found by him. That God honors that genuine search. That he wants to show himself to people who really want to know him. And friend, you can know God today if that's you. Maybe you're a Christian who looks at your life and thinks, you know, I, I'm seeking God for certain things. I want you to have the confidence that it's God's job to make his will known to you, not your job to prize it out of his hand. He's your Lord. He's the boss, in other words. It's always the boss's responsibility to communicate clearly to you about his will. And friend, if you have a big question about certain things going on in your life, stand on what you do know. Stand on what you do know about what obedience looks like from the scriptures, what he's calling you to rather than getting lost in so much doubt and agony about what you don't know. But friends, seek God, because he wants to make himself known to you. He wants to make his will known to you. And lastly, are you knocking? I mean by this, are you attempting things for God? I know this can begin to sound a little bit like the kind of ultra-charismatic way of speaking about the Christian life and the victorious Christian life. But friends, when I read the Bible, I think this is just normal Christian living, that we are all meant to be people who attempt things for God and who live lives where our faith give birth to kingdom action. I mean, things that are seeking to bring about the kingdom of God through making disciples, through preaching the gospel, through building the local church, 
through living out the calling that God's placed on your life based on your gifts or what he's spoken to you. All these kinds of things. And that's what I want you to think about. He says, knock and it will be opened to you. And he goes on, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. I think that so often we get paralyzed by uncertainty and fear. So many what-ifs whirl around in our minds when it comes to doing God's will. And it can sometimes be the fear of failure. And sometimes it's the fear of just getting it wrong. You're not sure what God wants you to do. And the truth is that a life that's ruled by fear is never going to please God at all anyway. I've, partly through just want, studying the Bible and partly through experience, I've just come to the, the, the conviction that you really don't know how you don't know, have to know everything about God's will. But it's better to be doing something. That inertia or lack of movement is the enemy. And that God wants you to be on the move with him. Walking in the light of what you do know. And trusting that as you knock on doors, he'll open doors in areas where you don't know. It's okay, in other words, to attempt stuff for God. Even if you're not 100% sure that you're walking in his will. Because when you read the Bible and ask yourself, what is it that pleases God? Yes, obedience pleases God. So if you're walking in sin, then you're, you need to sort that out. But the Bible also tells us that it's faith that pleases God. And what I'm trying to say to you, if you get one thing from today, is this. That you can trust him. That you can walk in faith. That you can walk knowing that God is on your side, that he cares about you and that he wants to see his will worked out in your life. And that even if you're not 100% sure about what his will is, you know, whether to marry that person or even just ask them out, whether to go for that career or job, whether to um, do this or do that, I think it's more reliable always to ask yourself, well, what, what is it that requires faith of me in this situation? And then just go for that. I remember reading Campbell Morgan's biography. Campbell Morgan was a, the pastor of Westminster Chapel twice, actually, around the turn of the last century, um, and spent many years there as a minister. And I think it was upon his second call back to the chapel. He didn't know what to do because he had the opportunity to go and be the principal of a Bible college elsewhere. I think it was in the United States. And he was caught in this indecision between, do I go to Westminster Chapel and be the minister there again, and lead a fruitful ministry, hopefully, or do I go and be the, the principal of the seminary? And he didn't know what God's will was in that situation. And the way he resolved it was this. He said, he asked himself this question, what would require the most faith of me right now? And it was in that that he made the decision, I need to go to Westminster Chapel and be the pastor. And that led to him then bringing Martin Lloyd-Jones, and the rest is history. If you read the story of the chapel, amazing story. It's okay to attempt stuff for God. You don't need to be, in other words, you don't need to be certain of your success, but you do need to be certain of God's goodness. You read the pages of the scriptures, so often God doesn't provide the guarantees that people want. All he does is assure them that he's a good God. And so I ask you as we close, If all that we've been saying, what Jesus is telling you about the goodness of your Father, were to sink into your heart, how would you act differently today if you were sure that he'd smile on your faith? What would you say no to? What would you say yes to?
How would you deal with that particular temptation that you're dealing with? How would you face that anxiety? How would you face that decision if you knew in your heart of hearts, mind, heart, and then will, that the God that you serve is good and that he's on your side? If you're not a Christian, can I ask you this? Are you, are you ready to cast yourself into his arms, as it were, and trust him with your life? I think there's nothing more terrifying than going through life without the certainty that God is taking care of you. There's no one to watch out for you. There's no one who's on your side. There is nothing more powerfully comforting than to know God as your father. And you can actually just become a Christian today. It's not actually that difficult. All he does is ask you to come to him and say that you're sorry for your sin. Ask him to come and make you part of his family and then commit your life to him in that sense. And you can be in his family. You can know him as your father. If you're a Christian, I... Are you living so that your prayers and actions reflect the belief in the goodness of God? We were singing about it, weren't we? It was shared in the words and the prayers that people brought in the worship. God is wanting to speak to you today about his goodness. He's wanting to reshape the way you live and the way you feel and the way you act, all these things. What are you doing that truly depends on God? What are you not doing for lack of trust? Let these questions just sink down deep and then meditate on what Christ says to you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. We pray. Father, we thank you that in your kindness you're patient with us when we doubt you. I'm very conscious, Lord, that All of our struggles come back to just some fundamental doubts about whether you're on our side, whether you have our best intentions at heart. And the things that we most agonize over and most wrestle with are always about that. And Lord, as we come to you today, we want to have simple, childlike trust before the Father that we know that you're good, that your will is good, that you are pleased with faith, that you love obedience and that you want to pour good things into our lives. I pray for every person here, Lord, that the truth of this would resonate in such a way, Lord, that it would move from the head into the heart and then affect the way they live, giving birth to prayers and acts of obedience and courageous acts of faith. We don't want to be people who live fear-filled lives. We don't want to be people who doubt your goodness in the day-to-day. Speak to us now. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us that we don't take you at your word. Forgive us that we don't always live as though you're real. Reshape the way we think. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.